Deconstructionist podcast is produced by Nicholas Rowe at the National Audio Preservation Society Recording Studio in Newark, Ohio. Follow us on social media at www.thedeconstructionist.com, on Facebook at Deconstructionist Podcast, Twitter at Deconstructcast, and Instagram at Deconstructionist Podcast. If listening to this podcast has benefited you in any way, consider making a donation. The donate link is in the show notes, or you can visit our website and click the donate tab. not hell anymore no we've moved past hell we have moved out (laughs) of hell congratulations everybody thanks for sticking with us (laughs) welcome to the deconstructionist podcast everyone we are your hosts i'm adam narlock and i'm john williamson and it is good to be with you guys all again today we need something to cleanse the hell (laughs) palate and we have the perfect guest on today i am so excited about this one because this was one of my little like uh theologian sort of man crushes from back in the day, and then you start a podcast, and you actually start communicating and talking with people that you like, <laughs> really respect, and this is one of them. So I'm excited about this. Who do we got here today, John? Yeah, I'm I'm super excited for you. This is one that we recorded back in um, the week of foot surgery, as I like to call it. So <laughs> we we and the the funny thing is we still haven't exhausted all the interviews we did that week. Nope. So we still got another one coming in December. But we packed them in. We did. We really did. When you're laid up for a week mm-hmm. and can't walk, what better thing to do than sitting that? on your couch, recording <laughs> podcasts, giving you a foot massage? Because that's the kind of friend I am. That's right. That's right. That's you're a giver. Kind of, that's, 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 <laughs> that's, the kind of, that's the kind of friend I am. <laughs> And 16 people just tuned out. <laughs> no, but it was it was super exciting for me uh, to see uh, you be able to interview uh, this guy. His name is Dr. Kyle Strobel. And for, for those of you that are like, Strobel, huh? That sounds familiar. Interesting. Well, he is actually the son of Lee Strobel, who's a, a best-selling author, famous for the books The Case for Christ, uh, The Case for God, that sort of thing. But um, Kyle, his son, went on to become quite the brilliant... Uh, Brainiac. He got a few degrees, as as I recall. Just a few. I think he has a collection of degrees <laughs> at this point. 
Uh, Guy is absolutely brilliant, but um, he's an assistant professor of spiritual theology and formation at Biola University. Yeah. Um, he He's deeply in, uh, influenced by systematic theology. He's a Jonathan Edwards scholar, spiritual formation, and um, even has a book out on prayer that we talk about a little bit in this interview. Yeah. But he, he spans both genres of uh, popular and academic books. Um, he, he's obviously written several books as well as articles um, in the Harvard Theological Review, Journal of Spiritual Formation and Soul Care, and Relevant Magazine. Um, and uh, a couple of the books that we talk about in this episode, uh, a book by the name of Beloved Dust. I think that's what we spent most of our time yeah. Yeah, kind of talking about in this one. Everybody needs to go get that book, by the way. So good. I mean, everybody needs to go get that book. I I cannot recommend that book highly enough. If you're interested in prayer, but you don't want somebody to give you a formula, you want somebody to walk you into a wide open space and invite you into just vastness and wonder and mystery and love and tenderness and perspectives you've never heard before, um, Beloved Dust will knock your freaking socks off. Yeah, man, this is this is good. Uh, I think this is a great episode that's going to lead us into the month of November. Uh, we have some really cool guests, um, sli- maybe slightly lesser known, yeah, guests, but like uh, that's why I'm excited. Really good stuff. Yeah, you don't know them yet, maybe, but you will know them. You will know them. They will be known. And some good musical guests this month too. Actually, I'm pretty pumped about. You're crushing it, John. Hey. That's just partly all I do. We're working life. hard. <laughs> just working hard for the fellow deconstructionists emails. out there. <laughs> That's right. Working real hard. Yeah, and if you're not following us on, uh, I, I have a playlist of uh, all the guests. Oh, that's right. On Spotify. So I see you're sporting a sweet t-shirt today too. Uh, it was dressed up at work day. So I dressed up <laughs> like a podcaster. <laughs> I was like, what's a way I can shamelessly plug our podcast at work? That is a, that is a sexy shirt, man. Do, is do you that know the if, vintage deconstructionists shirt designed by Joe Ernst? It is. Do, can people buy these? We only have a few left. Oh no! Where can they go to find? They're these? limited edition. Check the show notes. Go to our go to our Square store online. It's on our website. These were um, these were a treat for us to make because we got to highlight the work of an artist that follows our show and just have something fun to kind of commemorate this journey that we've been on with all of you guys and. Uh, we're pretty much selling them for what they cost us to make since we <laughs> yeah. didn't make a lot of them. They weren't super cheap. So yeah, just uh, get online and check it out. We have some uh, some other designs coming too. We just put another oh, order. Yeah. So another uh, design by another listener. Mm-hmm. So we're excited to, to put that one up on the website. So if you guys like them, uh, go there now. Like Adam said, they're, they're actually selling out pretty quickly, surprisingly. So yeah. you guys like them. I dig that. <laughs> so what, a couple of things we're going to get into in this conversation with Kyle, and then we'll just uh, get this rolling, is I, I like this interview, and I think what, what you guys can all expect from this interview is one of the things that happens when you start to desire more perspectives, you, de- you desire, you know, we call it a deconstruction, or more learning, or deeper, or wider, or whatever you want to call it. A lot of times, um, what feel, starts to feel stifling, um, or inadequate in the sort of, you know, perspectives that maybe you inherit in just your tradition or your family or whatever makes you want to just get out. Like, let's just, let's just get out of here and, you know, leave this behind and maybe find something else. When in fact, what I've found, and I think maybe, I don't want to speak for you, John, but what I've found is oftentimes you don't need to get out. You need to go deeper. Yes. And when you go deeper and you go back and you read some of these older authors, we're going to talk a lot about that. Some of the Cappadocian fathers and the desert fathers and the early mystics and the, you know, the desert mothers and fathers, 
And um, Kyle does an amazing job of distilling and then synthesizing all of this really tedious stuff to read because just language was completely different back then <laughs> into just beautiful, fresh insights about mystery of the mystery of God and uh, unknowability of God and mysticism, but then tying that into a, a conversation that actually makes sense on the ground. So uh, we talk a lot about prayer and it, it just really struck me that oftentimes the claustrophobia that I feel that makes me want to go out and, you know, start taking things apart. Oftentimes it's kind of like Marcus Borg would say, you know, instead of digging 60 wells, one feet deep, dig your well 60 feet deep, just get deeper and deeper and deeper. And you find, you know, just better and better stuff. And that is what Kyle Strobel has done for me. And that's why I'm just delighted to have him on the show. I hope, hope we can have him back. Cause I know he's got a freaking really controversial, cool book coming out next year about the church's abuse of power. Ooh. And Oh man, it's going to be really good. <laughs> so, um, this is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Hope you guys enjoy. This is a product of April. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. We were. It was we were, first getting warm and for, now it's forgive, getting cold Forgive again. us. We were a little rusty maybe in this interview. <laughs> Might have been a couple more outbursts. <laughs> no, not really. But all right, here we go. Um, friends, deconstructionists, we give you Kyle, Kyle freaking Strobel. Well, uh, Kyle Strobel, or should I call you Dr. Kyle Strobel, welcome to the Deconstructions <laughs> Podcast. Thanks so much, brother. Good to be here. Oh, it's such a joy to get you on the show, man. I've, I've learned a lot from your work, and you've got a really fresh um, fresh and, and ancient sort of approach. You, you really pull things from the earliest parts of the stream all the way up to right now, and I'm excited to dig into some of this stuff. So welcome, and I wonder if you could start off by just talking a little bit about... Um, your your spiritual formation um, going into your education a little bit. Sure. Yeah, you know, I um, my, my journey's been kind of an odd one. I I've always well, I shouldn't say this as always. I, I suppose there's a part of me that always has had an intellectual bent to me. Mm. But that if if you would have said that when I was in high school, no one would have believed you. If I could put it that way. <laughs> I I wasn't a good student. I was an athlete. I um, you know, didn't didn't follow the rules very well, and went to church because that's where the girls were, and um, <laughs> right, and that's pretty much about it, you know. And totally, when I went to college, I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I went to college because that's what you do next. Um, quite honestly, I had no reason other than I don't know what else to do, and um, I had very little ambition, very little direction, and I went to a small, little small, like. I actually, the school was smaller than my high school. It was a little Christian college and they, um, great place. It was a hugely meaningful time for me. And they, but when you applied, they, they forced you to put a major down. Hmm. And I, I was like, I, you know, I, <laughs> I you know, I, um, and so I saw biblical studies on there and I thought, well, I'm a Christian. I don't know anything about the Bible. Sure. <laughs> so I'll kill two birds with one stone, you know? <laughs> And so I ended up studying biblical studies. I had no background. I mean, I, I, I went, you know, through high school, junior high and below. I never really read the Bible. You know, I did kind of 
you know, memorization kind of thing you do every now and again, but I virtually no knowledge of the Bible and fell in love with the kind of rigorous questions that biblical studies forced me into questions Mm -hmm. of hermeneutics, um, questions of the kind of movements across the canon, theological questions. And so eventually that led me to, to begin to wonder if, if kind of um, pastoral ministry might be in my, my future. And um, I was beginning to love the more academic life, although I was still really new to it. And so I eventually went and got a philosophy degree because I kind of thought, well, no matter what I do, this will probably help. Mm-hmm. And eventually I kind of realized, I'm like, well, you know, I think I do want to be a professor, so I'm going to need to do a PhD. But I, and this is unusual. I don't know too many people this has happened to, but I kind of realized I wanted to be a professor before I knew what I wanted to teach. <laughs> I, I get that. Uh, I get like, that. And so I ended up, I knew I didn't want to do philosophy after I did a master's in philosophy. So I said, well, I loved biblical studies. Why don't I go back? And so I did a master's in New Testament. Um, I was really interested in the time in, um, this is probably back 2003-ish. Um, there was, I was really interested in some of the stuff N.T. Wright was up to. I was really interested in um, a lot of the kind of, um, you know, this is in the wake of Rob Bell's work and some of the recovery of, or at least the desire to recover this kind of Hebrew backgrounds, like one of the Jewish backgrounds to the New Testament. And yeah. so we wanted to explore some of those questions. And I, I ended up coming back doing a, a PhD in New Testament, or doing a master's in New Testament. And I was planning on doing a PhD in New Testament. But then someone told me if I wanted a job, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> it was interesting advice. And you know, throughout this time, I, I had had a, I had kind of, between my philosophy degree and my New Testament degree, I'd gone through what I came later to kind of know as a dark night of the soul, mm. um, which is what, you know, the, you're going to get through John of the Cross and the Catholic tradition. It's what the Puritan tradition called spiritual desertion. Wow. Um, the Puritans and even the Westminster divines would often use that language of spiritual desertion. Sometimes like someone like Francis Roos, who is one of the Westminster divines would, would go back and forth in many ways between spiritual desertion and just even just saying dark night. Um, and they of course read all that stuff. They had read John of the cross and um, as the, the reform tend to. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, I, I went through this experience and, and in many ways, maybe my, my desire to study the new Testament a bit more closely was kind of coming out of this experience of, um, you know, in classic kind of dark night understanding it's God's not abandoned you, but it kind of feels like he has. Wow. And so I, I ended up wrestling quite a lot with even just some of my desires and the realization that at the end of the day, I desire things. I think God can give me much more than I desire God himself. Oh man. Wow. So it it was in the midst of that, that I'm wrestling with these kinds. And these are the kinds of questions that were driving me. You know, for me, I, I, I meet people who are pure academics and I've never been that. I, I know some folks, I'm friends with some folks who probably could have done a PhD in virtually anything. They're just that bright. Yeah. Um, and that driven, I've never been that. I, I couldn't study something that wasn't directly connected to kind of my existential longing. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's just, just, it's always been a part of my story and who I am. And, um, and even maybe some of my laziness, um, but the, you know, in the midst of that, I had, I, I had started reading folks like Willard and, and Foster and I, you know, I grew up with John Ortberg as one of my pastors. Mm-hmm. So I, and I kind of saw Ortberg as my pastor when I, I grew up at Willow Creek and, um, he's the one I would go to, to talk about stuff with. And so he introduced me to Foster quite early. 
um, through my philosophy department, there was, we had folks here who were mentored by Willard. And I kind of realized, you know, everything seems to be oriented around these questions of the Christian life. And so I'm like, I wonder if I can, how, how I could turn my attention there. So I actually ended up starting a third master's in spiritual formation, which I never finished. Wow. But it was in the midst of that experience where I realized historically spirituality and theology were never two conversations, but were one conversation. Mm. And so I actually went, um, I applied to the university of Aberdeen, got in to study theology. That's something I'd never studied before, um, which was a bit overwhelming at, at first, as you could probably imagine. Oh my gosh. I actually end up now, I, I teach in a spiritual formation department. So I end up teaching the history of Christian spirituality. I teach spiritual theology to seminary students and things like that out of my work in Edwards and, and elsewhere. So, um, that's kind of man <laughs> where this has all come back around. That is that. I mean, that is quite a journey. I love how you, I love how you talked about you know the tension that you started to experience in that dark night or that desertion mm-hmm. actually becoming something that was. It sounded like I was actually a force that was driving you. Yeah, you know, it's for me. I mean, lots of people, you know, respond differently to those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And I, I had had good enough teachers in my undergrad where I, I had had some of this flagged for me. So I actually had and it, in, t- in those times, some of that just helps to kind of have, you know, just some direction in the midst of the wilderness. And if you can name what you're in as a wilderness, that kind of helps because it, it orients you to this isn't this isn't God leaving me. Um, this is God showing me who mm. I really am. And yeah. Um, if I trust in Christ the way I, 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 I do, then I shouldn't be afraid to see what's really in my heart. Uh, mm. Even if what I find there are things like you, I, I need to save myself. Um, yeah. And finding that there doesn't mean that God somehow rejected me. This is what I find so interesting about Jesus. You know, Jesus would run into people and they just kind of come out of themselves and they would say all sorts of embarrassing things. <laughs> Or do embarrassing. But Jesus would have never been fun to hang out with, right? Because it's constantly baiting you on this kind of stuff. Like, what are you guys talking about? It's like, well, who's the greatest? You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just this embarrassing kind of reality. But, you know, one of the things I think happens in prayer is the reason when we go to prayer, our mind wanders so much. And we, um, our, mind, our hearts are kind of coming out of ourselves because we're in the presence of God. And God's presence does that. Wow. But if we start to try to fix that, that's a kind of idolatry now. And so I've got to learn as, as, as a follower of Christ to, to allow my heart to be broken open. You know, one of my favorite passages is Hebrews 4 because it, it's the only passage in Bible that explains what, what it should be like to read God's word. And it's, you are laid naked and exposed before the one to whom you must give an account. Wow. Uh, and your thoughts and intentions of your heart are exposed. And it's like, oh. Oftentimes I spend more time in the word like Adam and Eve spent in the garden after their sin, which is hiding and covering from God. Man. And he's, he's looking to kind of break this whole thing open. Mm. And so for me, a lot of it was tr- coming to accept that, that that's what the Christian life was about. And that's, yeah. that's why Christ looks for power and weakness because all we know there is weakness. That's good stuff, man. One of the things that drew me to your work was um, it seemed to me like you were interested in uh, mysticism in a lot of ways. You know, you edited this volume of reading the Christian spiritual classics. 
And there is this resurgence that John and I are realizing. Um, people feel very claustrophobic in a traditional, in a traditional Christian stream. And a lot of people are resorting back, you know, maybe before leaving completely or after leaving, become, becoming curious again. And a lot of people are resurging back to this sort of mysticism. And one of the things that, um, became apparent to me is that these quote unquote, uh, I'll use air quotes here, mystics in early Christian spirituality wouldn't have probably even seen themselves as mystics. There was something that bifurcated along the way, something that separated along the way. I think you even touched on it, the difference between quote spiritual spirituality and quote theology, mm, yeah, the, yeah. This, this separation. And then could you talk a little bit about some of these early fathers? You, you understand that stuff so well. Could you draw some of that stuff out? Yeah, well, in, you know, in the ancient church, there's this expectation that theology was theology was a mode of contemplation, ultimately, mm. and therefore the the spiritual life, and even your, um, if we can think of holiness in this way, which I actually don't like to, but if we think about someone's holiness, was directly related to their ability to do theology well. Wow, um, and you know. And, and really, and this is, if, you could put this in different terms by saying something like theology isn't simply about knowledge, but about wisdom. It was what later the great um, Dutch Reformed writer Peters van Maastricht would call a theoretica practica discipline, right? It's both theoretical and practical. Oh, wow. And the roots for theoretical is theoria, which is how we translate contemplation. Right, right, right. And so in the practice, you know, is what we get the practical and and these things were recognized as necessarily held together hmm. that you couldn't somehow, and we have this notion that we get to choose which one is, or I'm the kind of person who does this kind of stuff. And I, <laughs> this other stuff to you, you know, I, I'm interested in reading books, but you might be interested in the spirit or something like, and it's, they just didn't bifurcate this, this stuff this way. And, and even, you know, most of us who are in kind of, let's say, kind of vocational ministry situation. You know, we went, we learned a lot about this stuff in seminary, but modern seminaries have followed a model of education that is segregated, right? It's, it's, it pushes towards high, high specialization and segregation mm. in a way that was totally foreign to the tradition. And so you look at, I mean, almost all the areas of, of study, all the disciplines of a seminary are just make-believe, right? <laughs> You know, we just made this stuff up, like, <laughs> like New Testament. Like, I have a New Testament degree. It's like, why don't I have a degree in the Bible? Like, why New Testament versus Old Testament? Why That's amazing. Yeah. practical theology versus systematic theology? Why, you know, originally, there was divinity. And a theologian would have been called a divine, like Edwards would have been the great divine, you know, Jonathan Edwards. And you, you couldn't just study, you know, in narrow kind of niche areas. And he, you know, you're also studying, you know, um, philosophy, physics, history, languages. And what we have done is because of the model of education we've, we've adopted and because of the post-enlightenment context we're in, we train people to have skills yes. and train people narrowly. So if you're in a hermeneutics class, you're, you're being trained on how to read the Bible. The problem is that what these people need to have is wisdom. They do need skills, like reading helps, for instance, um, and reading well helps, right? And there's, we could talk about genre. We could talk, you know, there's all sorts of things you could talk about. But much more important than the skills is, 
is wisdom and is them being known. I remember I was talking to Dallas Willard and Dallas Willard said to me, he said, look, he said, you know, these seminaries and these contexts, you know, we tell people, oh yeah, if you want to minister well, you know, you know Greek, you need a new hermeneutics, you need to buy. Of course, he would affirm all of that. We do need to know these things. But his response was, no, no, no. We need to teach people how to abandon themselves to God. Whoa. Wow. And, you know, and, and really, to be honest, that's why my program exists. The program I teach in exists for that very fact. But I think Willard nails it, is that, you know, that's what the tradition understood. It's not that they weren't careful theologians. They, they, they recognize this takes skill, this takes effort, this takes, you know, these were highly technical. You think of the Cappadocian fathers. These are philosophical thinkers like Gregory of Nyssa. Yes. Origin was, you know, we t- often origin gets a bad rap. It, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a scholar alive today who is as rigorous of an interpreter of Scripture as Origen. I'm a big fan of Origen. Just recently became a big fan of Origen and getting into the Cappadocian Fathers and, yeah, especially Gregory of Nyssa. Yeah. Oh, man. It just seems like there's some kind of depth there. Um, one of the things I, I just finished reading, uh, Karen Armstrong's book, The Case for God. Mm. And Armstrong, she's got this unbelievably great ability to observe the changes in the trends over the years and the changes in the focus as a result of cultural pressures and cultural, um, um, just, you know, things that become in vogue. And so, and so, you know, this, this gets here and then this has to keep up with this. And so religion has to keep up with science and then science is pushed further and then philosophy. And there's all these compartmentalized categorizations, but she says at the end of the book, when she's in conclusion that she says at a time now where science and philosophy and modern investigation are becoming less and less determinative. Mm. All of us as a collective community, the scientist, the philosopher, the theologian, the practitioner, are starting to turn back towards silence Mm. to sum up what we now know we can't. Yeah. And it seems like people are turning back to those guys you mentioned. Could you talk a little bit about how you see like the Cappadocian fathers, the desert fathers, Gregory, like, like helping us peer into some of those depths? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's just, there's profound wisdom in, I mean, I think the desert tradition, particularly, you know, the, and of course, all that you've mentioned, there's profound depth. Um, the Cappadocians theologically are, are profound in their integration between spirituality and theology. The Desert Fathers have um, kind of maybe the highest level of pre-Freudian psychology ever achieved. Um, Whoa. The psychological depth of the Desert Fathers is astronomical. And, and really, until you hit Freud, you, you don't see anything as, as, as rich as that. Guess- could you give us an example? That'd be awesome. Well, yeah, yeah, that's it's hard to narrow down. I mean, I mean, there's some odd stuff to it. I mean, it's, that's not to say that it's all right, right? Um, you know, but you have the the seven deadly sins, for instance, comes out of the eight evil thoughts that was developed by Evagrius. Um, Evagrius is going to be the originistic um, theologian who eventually flees to the desert and becomes really, in many ways, one of the desert theologians. And he's going to develop this whole notion of eight evil thoughts, which eventually paves the way for a huge amount of um, the discussion that, that is formed into um, the eight uh, the seven deadly sins and um, vice and the development of vice. And wow, you know, the, and, and what's amazing about the desert fathers, whether you're reading works like the sayings of the desert fathers or Cassian's um, conferences or things like that, you, you get this a picture of, you know, there's this radical lifestyle going on, but it, this incredible balance and wisdom. Oh man. 
And, you know, they, they, they firmly believe that, that we're all called and you should know your calling and determine for based on, there's this wonderful section in the, in the Cassian's conferences where he's kind of, um, in the conference he's having the, the, the ABBA is, is, is referring to like, look, you know, figure out what you're called to and then figure out what does it mean to be faithful here? And, you know, it's, it's, I don't know about you, but at times I could be reading some of this stuff and kind of feel like these were the real Christians. And yeah. like, man, if I was really, if I was really serious, I would do this kind of, and, and they're very quick to remind you, no, 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 no. Do what you're called to. And one of, for example, like one of the great and kind of most famous sayings of the desert tradition is go to your cell. It will teach you everything. Whoa. And for us in many ways, I mean, you, you have, you guys, you know, with, with kids and with, um, you know, we have similar kinds of things in our lives, right? Go to your cell. Well, a cell isn't necessarily bad. That was just the, the room. That was home. I like, go home. It'll teach you everything in a sense. And, you know, we, at the end of a day, and I go home to a two-year-old who is being potty trained. Yep. That will teach. But I've got to, I've got to be faithful to that call. I've got to, I've got to learn how to play again because my children are teaching me and I, that I've forgotten how to play. I've got to attend to them in their questions and their frustrations and their longings. I've got to not simply parent their behavior, but I've got to crawl inside their heart and see what is going on here. Hmm. Um, how can I, how can I hold this child from within? So they're seen and known even in the midst of their sin. And the desert fathers give us a beautiful glimpse into that. Hmm. And in a, in a wildly profound way about what soul care looks like. Yeah. Um, now there's also this other stuff we go, well, okay. <laughs> stuff, and that's all the whole tradition is that way, you know, then the, and presumably a hundred years from now we'll be taken that way. And, and so if we, if we just attend faithfully, I think what we find is there, there's, there's quite a lot that is profound here, you know, in, um, in a spiritual classic, like Gregory of Nyssa's life of Moses, we begin to see a different kind of reading of scripture that mm -hmm. is profoundly apophatic in many ways. Yeah. What do you mean by apophatic? That's something I wanted you to touch on just a little bit. It's a, it's part of the tradition that I've found very interesting in this journey of like deconstruction and yeah. kind of, kind of moving away from overly certain assertions. Yeah. You know, and this is, this is one of the kind of um, standard pieces of the tradition, quite honestly, is that, um, there, there's cataphatic knowledge of God, which is going to be more positive knowledge of God. Most of what we think of today would, as knowledge of God would fall under cataphatic. The apophatic knowledge of God is, is knowledge of God through some kind of negation. And that could look in many different ways. It could be simple. I mean, depending on how, depending on who's defining it and how broad of a definition we want to give it, it could be as simple as something like, when I say God is outside of time, that's not a positive claim. It's a negative claim. Mm. It's temporal. I haven't really made a comment. I've just kind of said, whatever God is, he's beyond this. Mm. But then if you push back even further, you get the more robust understandings of someone like Pseudo Dionysius, where we'll get the somewhat paradoxical notions like, well, God is light. And if you press into the light, what you will see is darkness. Yes. And then if you ascend into that cloud of unknowing, which is a famous term, not just a book, a wonderful book, but not just a book, um, as you kind of ascend into the cloud of unknowing, what you'll find there is a luminous darkness. Whoa. And so you get the, you get the affirmation light, you get the negation darkness, and then you get the paradoxical kind of 
um, synthesis, which is luminous darkness. And so there's debate. That is awesome. Kind of stuff, right? Like how do we read this? And in the cloud of unknowing, the the great spiritual classic about prayer, um, which is a wonderful, it's a surprisingly easy book actually to read, although it's odd because it's just, we just, we we don't do this, right? And the cloud of unknowing is kind of funny. It makes me laugh every time I read it because you get the sense of, you're kind of ascending in the cloud. And this is just, they're using Moses. This is what Gregory of Nyssa would have done as well, right? Moses ascends up the mountain in, in the cloud descends. And so suddenly he, he's in a cloud of unknowing. Every, all the, and the idea is all the things we think we know about God, it's not that they're being negated as if they're untrue. But what we're discovering there is our concepts aren't big enough to kind of hold God. Man, that's good. And, to quote Hauerwas, that God's not another piece of furniture in our universe, right? That God is so utterly transcendent of these things that whatever we, and, and this is what, this is why theologians have always talked about God by analogy. That our language, which was created for a material finite reality, doesn't refer well to an infinite reality. Yes. That doesn't mean it's not true. But it means that there is an infinite otherness beyond our affirmation. Mm, yes. So that's where we get that God is light, God is darkness, God is luminous darkness, where it's not, it's not negating his light. But even the darkness there, it's God is so super abundant. It's, you know, sometimes you, if you look directly at the sun, you'll see dark spots, right? Yeah. Is that God is so light that, that what we actually experience is dark. Mm. And, and you get Moses becomes one of the great kind of um, archetypes for this, of the, the kind of ascent into the cloud. And it is, a, it is, in a sense, a reminder that, again, not, I think it'd be wrong to, to read this as somehow we are um, negating what we know about God so that we don't know anything. No, it's, it's the cataphatic knowledge is still true, but it's entering into how incomplete that really is. Mm-hmm. And I think as a part of this, you know, one of the things you mentioned it earlier about ancient mysticism versus modern mysticism, you know, modern mysticism, you have a group of people who are in many ways looking to be mystics. Yes. Whereas ancient mystics were never doing that. They were looking to be Christian. Right. And sometimes what I see in modern mysticism is, I think, a confusion of ancient mysticism. Modern mysticism, in my mind, is looking more towards creating and or having an experience. Yes. Yep. Whereas ancient mysticism, because they were apophatic. They were, they were in a sense also negating their experience. Yes. And so, if they had an experience, in a sense, praise God, you know. And then sure. they and then they leave it aside and move on. Man, <laughs> because if you're focusing on your experience, you're precisely not focusing on God. Oh man, you're sounding like uh, our guy Richard Rohr, even a little bit like Paul Tillich here. Hmm. Well, and it's it's this is just a standard kind of aspect of of apathetic knowledge is that. Well, to even use not, I mean, it's precisely not knowledge. <laughs> right, 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 right. right. Uh, that's where this language gets hard. But it's, that's so cool. It's, there's a sense, and I think, but it, it is that balance with the with the cataphatic that we don't we don't lose our affirmations, but it does create it does create humility. It does mean at times we're pressed into silence and awe and wonder. Mm. Um, it does mean that because you know one of the one of the realities about the fear of God being the beginning of wisdom. Is we we're a, we fear God, I think, because He's utter freedom, and that's horrifying. Whoa! Wow. Um, God, I mean, if you think so, Adam is in the garden. They've just sinned. He's filled with you know guilt and shame 
which is why he he um, he does what we all do when we're filled with guilt and shame, which is cover himself. Um, God shows up in the garden. Now he's filled with fear and anxiety, so he hides. Also, what we do, um, and then God calls him out, and it's so interesting because Adam clearly doesn't have the fear of God here because he tries to he he. It's a brilliant rhetorical maneuver. He he both blames Eve, and then kind of indirectly blames God for the sin. <laughs> he says, "Well, Eve, who you made, <laughs> right? <laughs> your fault. I blame. Like, I didn't answer her, and who made her again? Oh, you did. You know. I mean, it's, it's a very kind of interesting. But Adam is still doing what many of us do in prayer, which is try to manipulate God. We're whoa, yeah. We, we still are naive enough to think. And I mean, think of Matthew seven. Right. So there's a guy standing before the judgment seat." Jesus says something presumably like, and who are you? And who am I? You know, I, I did many wonderful works. I've healed people. I've, um, I've done miracles. And Jesus says, I do not know you. Man. And, you know, the, the, we often focus on Jesus's statement. But if we think about the guys, like, if we're standing before God and we give God our resume, that, that shows some real confusion about who God is in our mind he still thinks he can kind of wield something in the presence of God, whether that's his importance, right? What he's done. I've done miracles. I've done wonderful works. Um, for many of us, I think in prayer, we, we think we can hide some aspects of ourselves. Mm. Um, we th- and so part of what apophaticism is doing is it's reminding us that we like Job stand before the whirlwind. Wow. And, and that, but it also should remind us that while the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, the end is love and perfect love casts out fear. Whoa. And wow. so the trajectory we're on does not leave us in the fear of God, but we truly have to, to journey through that fear. And this is where I think Hebrews 4 comes back in. We can't bypass this into a place where we can cover ourselves from God like Adam and Eve tried to. You know, when God shows up in the garden, Adam should have said, thank goodness God is here. He ran and hid. (laughs) Yeah. You know, notice who the problem is. God's now seen as the problem. And I think for for all of us, to some degree, that's true of us. And it comes out in prayer. And in prayer now, we are trying to hide. We are trying to cover. And in Hebrews 4, if we take that seriously, I think what the word of the Lord is doing is just trying to leave us naked and exposed. And it's trying to, I mean, not for the, not for its own sake, not because that's somehow good, but because Christ clothes us with the robes of righteousness. And we're too busy clamoring to hide and cover ourselves that we simply cannot receive what Christ has to offer because we're simply too afraid of it. Oh my gosh, but man. We are too tuned in to the things we, and our concepts of God are, our, our religious service. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things we can use to do to hide from God and cover what, what the, the recollection that God is infinitely above these things and he has infinite freedom itself. This brings us to, to pure worship at this point. And in many ways, silence and not, I, I'm not of the stripe that says silence is like wordlessness is somehow better than wordfulness or something like that. But I think in our silence, and this is what Jamin Goggin and I argue in Beloved Dust is that when, when we pray silently, what we are doing is we're actually resting upon the intercessory prayer of Son and Spirit for us, through us, and within us. And we are, in a sense, silently uttering amen to what God is already doing, recognizing 
that when I speak in prayer, I'm often trying to manipulate God Whoa. instead of trusting that he's enough for me. Oh, man. Oh, I'm too convicted to talk right now. You, yeah. <laughs> Basically, half answered my uh, one of my questions. So, um, <laughs> uh, I, I had heard I had heard a really great interview with you um, uh, where where you kind of touch on some of your work in Beloved Dust and in in, in regards to prayer specifically. Um, and I would love for you to keep kind of keep going with that, um, sure. just in regards to the fact that prayer has kind of become this strange thing, uh, you know, where it's become kind of more like an Amazon shopping list, where <laughs> We give lists, you know, a list of things that we want from God, and then and then we're confused and almost upset, like when it doesn't come in that two day shipping thing, you know. So, so maybe um, you could kind of talk about that a little bit because I know you've also mentioned uh, some other things that I love that you mentioned were um, just kind of the distractions uh, in society these days and kind of the noise uh, that kind of prevents us from a, a good life of prayer and, and just kind of this instant gratification type society that we, we seem to live in these days. Yeah. 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 There's so much that plays into this, you know, and it's, I mean, I think in one sense, there is something distinctively pagan going on in much of the way we pray, mm. where we pray to placate a pagan deity. And this is what worries me about, about confession and prayer is I think many of us, we, we sin or we experience a part of our sinfulness, our brokenness or something. And what we experience in ourselves is guilt. And so we pray and we confess, but really we're not even talking to God there. We're, we're basically telling God, look, I want you to leave me alone. I feel guilty, but I want to stop feeling guilty. I'm sorry. Get off me. Wow. Yeah. Now I'm I'm trying to say I'm trying to figure out can I do a religious activity to placate this deity who won't leave me alone? And and I think, you know, I think we haven't done a great job of helping people understand the dynamics of guilt and shame. Yeah. Um, the dynamics of fear and anxiety and how all of us are wrestling through these things. Mm. Um, that our our hearts in the fall have been attuned to guilt, shame, fear, anxiety, um, and loneliness and desire and longing and these various things. And all of these things attune us in to, to kind of self-defeating schemes. And this is exactly why Adam flees from God. God's the only one that can help in this. Why is he hiding? Like, God's here. Like, this is good. Right. And all of our hearts are tuned that very way. And when God is present, which he always is in prayer, that opens us up to, uh-oh, God sees this. Oh, man. Yeah. And there's enough of ourselves that still believe this is on me to fix, that somehow how God sees me is based on my behavior, my activity, what I can achieve, um, that we, we feel too exposed. Like Adam and Eve, we feel naked and we feel ashamed. And we need to figure out better ways to handle that. So on one side, I think 
there's certain kind of expectations about what prayer is for that are faulty. Mm, yeah. And this, the other way, the other, and this is in many ways parallel to that is that, I mean, if you think of, um, in my, in one of my favorite gospel passages, um, that really sums up in my, in my sense, probably maybe the most clear kind of gospel passage in scriptures, Ephesians two eighteen. Mm-hmm. in Christ, we have access to the father in one spirit. And it's a spatial term, which means it's a temple term. And Ephesians 2.19 is going to reveal that as well. It's access to the Father, which is, you know, and the kind of, I, I'm not going to say this is the only way to pray, but I think the standard kind of prayer form, if we can think of it that way, which is really not a form of what we're saying as much as what we're doing, is to the Father, in the Son, by the Spirit. And God has unfolded himself in that kind of form in Revelation and calls us back within that form to himself. Um, von Balthasar has a, has a wonderful quote in this regard where he's, where he's talking about the kind of nature of, of, of Christian prayer in its Trinitarian format and kind of how all that looks. Um, and von Balthasar, the, um, who's written probably one of the most profound books on prayer I've ever read. It's just kind of truly wonderful. Um, But there, um, in one of his books on prayer, he says, Christian prayer can attain to God only along the path that God himself has trod. Otherwise, it stumbles out of the world and into the void, falling prey to the temptation of taking this void to be God or of taking God to be nothingness itself. Wow. Wow. And von Balthasar is lovely, but the, <laughs> the the idea that Christian prayer can attain to God only along the path that God trod Himself is that the invisible Father sent the visible Son and the illuminating Spirit. That if we've seen the Son, we have seen the Father, and that movement of self-giving, which is called God's life in something like Ephesians three seventeen in a negative fashion, um, you know we what we see is this kind of movement to access to the father. And this is why in James and Hebrews, we have the command to draw near where in Hebrews, we have the notion that Christ is your great high priest who has ascended into the real temple into the very presence of God. He intercedes there on our behalf and we're called to ascend the throne of grace boldly. And so I think what's happening in prayer, if we recognize kind of a broader view of prayer is that we're, we're, we're entering into the presence of God. Mm. We are upheld there and carried there in the prayers of the Son and the Spirit. So prayer is nothing we generate. It's something we are entering into with oh, the Son and the Spirit. And we are caught up in the presence of God. And notice how this shifts expectations. Because my expectation of being in the presence of God is that the truth of myself will come out. So if, if you begin to pray and your mind starts wandering, for instance, yeah. which I'm sure neither of you have ever had that experience. It's never happened to me, ever. <laughs> right. The, you know, this, is, this is one of the funny things. Like, this is one of those things where everyone experiences and no one talks about, which I think is <laughs> And I think because I think we feel shame. And, in, and so we beat ourselves up and we kind of make up a ridiculous promise to God. Like, I'm going to, you know, I don't know, try harder. What does that even mean? Right. Um, and basically, we tell, we tell the God who told us without Jesus, we can do nothing, that mm. we're going to get our prayer lives figured out on our own. Yeah, I'm going to fix this. I'll fix it, right? And instead of saying, wow, I'm in your presence and I'm bored, Lord, what is – reveal to me my idolatry. Reveal to me what, what beliefs do I have about success and about what life is about that I'm captivated by other things and not you. Yeah. Like, 
why don't we have those conversations? Whatever comes out of your heart in prayer, presumably it came out because you were in the presence of God. And that's a great thing to talk to God about. And so well, but what I think we usually do is because we, we've misrecognized the kind of purpose of prayer. And we also didn't usually help people think about guilt, shame, fear, anxiety, things like that. We experience particularly guilt and shame in prayer because of our own sinfulness. And that taps deeply into the idea that I'm not good enough. Mm. And as my spiritual mentor would, would, would always remind me, Kyle, prayer is not a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. Wow, man. And I think many of us fail at prayer because we're still convinced it's a place to be good. And this is why in my own kind of evangelical background, you find people who are very ready to kind of do a Bible study where they're primarily reading. Because I can read a passage of scripture and feel left like I did something important. Yeah. I can check off a list. And I kind of feel like, look, I nailed that. Yeah. I never leave prayer thinking I nailed that. No, <laughs> no. And it's it's humbling. It's But I leave prayer thinking without Jesus, I could do nothing. Man, that's good. And so we, I think we need to really cast a different sort of vision about what prayer is about. And I think the reason why is to go back to your original question and why we turn to things like lists of things we hope God will do for us. Yeah. Some of that's a misguided notion of God, but I think deep down is it's a way to hide. It's a way to pray and to feel like, yeah, I pray, but never actually enter into prayer. Wow. Yeah. Because now it's a way to, it's a, it's the only way we can make prayer feel like I nailed it. Look, I did it. And I feel good about myself. For I am it. a prayer warrior. I always That's, used to hear people talk about these like prayer warriors. Like, Hey, that lady over there is a prayer warrior. Totally. And, and I would walk <laughs> away going, well, that sucks because I have no idea what that means. Yeah. What <laughs> is that? Even and mean? obviously I am not spiritual. <laughs> yeah, Totally. Because I suck at prayer. In fact, I'm going to write a book. It's going to be short, and it's going to say I suck at prayer. <laughs> yeah. It'd be a great book. It'd be a you great. <laughs> oh man. So, so what kind of um, you know, kind of tangible uh, you know, advice do you have for folks out there? Because I'm sure a lot of our listeners, you know, ha- have struggled with prayer and have struggled with um, just feeling like when they pray, they're just basically chucking a rock out into the darkness. Um, what what kind of uh, practical um, advice do you have for just kind of you know the basics of of getting started on on maybe more of a I don't know correct correct I guess type type of uh, yeah, prayer life yeah 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 you know one of the in the Puritan tradition they had a um, a, a discipline that they would call soliloquy mm-hmm. yeah and it's taken from the psalmist so you get these interesting passages in the psalmist where Suddenly, you know, they're praying, the psalmist is praying, and then suddenly they're talking to themselves, right? Oh, my soul that is within me. And so suddenly they're so it's like they're they're holding in their hand their soul now and they're speaking into it. And so like in Psalm 62, you have this really interesting thing. You have this bold declaration right up front. My soul waits for God alone in silence, if I if I remember correctly. And then like a couple of passages later, you have him talking to himself saying, Wait, my soul for God in silence. <laughs> like he's like begging his soul to do it. And you're going, wait, which one was it? And well, the, the answer is kind of yes, right? I mean, it's a little bit of the prayer of I believe, help my unbelief. Where when we enter in prayer, we need to attend. We need to, as, as Paul just said, we need to be watchful in our prayer. And as things come up for us, if we're, if we're feeling guilt and shame, if our mind's wandering, if there's an aspect of our life with God where we're um, experiencing loneliness, we're experiencing maybe desertion, right? Kind of a dark night experience. Or it could be elation, maybe whatever it is. Mm. 
we were, we're kind of entering in and we're kind of attending, we're being watchful to the depths of the reality of how we stand before God. And we are speaking into our soul and, and we're attending to what our soul says in back. So for instance, if, you know, I think for most of us, if we send into our soul, um, without Christ, I can do nothing. We're going to get back something like, nope, I can do all sorts of things without Christ. Okay. <laughs> I believe, help me in my unbelief. Right? Wow. The, um, I think of, you know, for m- many of us, you know, and so you think, take John ten ten. Like that Jesus came to give life abundant. We don't buy that. Our soul cries out, he's a liar. Yeah. This is not the abundant life, right? Yeah. Because well, we've, we've bought into this, these worldly conceptions of the abundant life. And so now it's like, how do we, we like the key here is we have to be who we are in prayer. Mm. If you send your avatar in prayer, you're never really praying. Man, that's good. <laughs> That is that is really really good stuff. One of the things that I think you're touching on here that I noticed is uh, we started off the podcast talking about um, a journey that goes from certitude to uh, unknowing. That there's this uh, vowing and then this disavowing, this knowledge and then this unknowing, and then even in you know relating to theology, we talked about how in the early church fathers they understood this as soon as you you know make a statement about God, you also have to ascend then into that apophatic knowledge that it's that negative. It's like, yeah, God is love, but not like we know love. Yeah. So there's this knowing and then this unknowing and then this re-knowing, this re-illumination. And it seems like even in prayer, what happens is we start to realize that we're a bundle of contradictions. Yeah. That we ourselves, as we gaze into the abyss of the divine, into lo- into things we don't understand— it's ourselves that we are like, I'm like this. I believe this. Wait, no, I don't. No, I'm not. There's this vowing and disavowing even in ourselves. And one of the things that you say in Beloved Dust that I, that I just love, and it, it actually sounds a little bit like uh, something one of our friends uh, or guys we've had on the show built a relationship with uh, Peter Rollins, a philosopher. He does like radical theology and some, yeah. some pretty out there stuff, which is a lot of fun. Um, you say... Uh, in in uh, uh, unlimited limitation the chapter unlimited limitation page 30 mm-hmm. page 34 you say regardless of our countless failures mistakes and frustrations brought on by our weakness we still turn to independence self-help and self-improvement as the answer to our problems instead of embracing that so how does how does this mode of prayer that you're suggesting this this way of looking at spirituality take all those failures, mistakes, frustration, these contradictions that we find within ourselves that match the contradictions we find in the world that match the contradictions that we find even in God in some ways as we experience him? How does that actually turn into then a mode of praying and being with the divine? Yeah, no, I mean I think this is where we this is where our theology is going to come back around to be incredibly important to us. Because, I mean, take take John in 1 John um, 4. He's going to say, you know, in, when you're in the presence of God, your heart will condemn you. But God is greater than your heart. Yeah. And if you think it's interesting, it's in, the, in that context, you have, you're in the presence of God. It's interesting that John thinks your heart's going to condemn you in the presence of God. But here's here's the problem. This goes back to that garden narrative, back to guilt and shame and all of this, is that when we stand in prayer, you know, we're, we're going to see a mirror and we're not going to like what we see. And right. the question is, what do we do? 
deep down, many of us are convinced that we can hide and cover from God. Um, and may, for some of us, you know, for my, you know, anyone who has children sees this happen all the time. Our children re re narrate the Genesis account to us constantly. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So it's true. Doing something, right? my, my son will hide. Oh yeah. Literally hide his body under covers. My, my daughter will say things like, daddy, do you want to talk about Jesus? Well, <laughs> <laughs> Pharisee lover, you know, she's, she's uh, already man. figured out the best place to hide from, from, from authority is in religion. Oh my gosh. Wow. And that, yeah, the, the, the heart is deceitful above all else. Right? <laughs> um, and so the question is, you know, how do we, you know, this is where in prayer, because what's happening in prayer a lot of times is our subconscious, you know, our, 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 our longings, all these things are bubbling up. And that's when we need a good conscious theology to be able to hold us. So I need to be able to speak to myself in that moment. There's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why do I think I have to atone for my own sin? And I, but I've, I'm not just self, that's not self-talk. That's a part of soliloquy. The whole point of soliloquy is not to talk to yourself, but to, to bring yourself in prayer before God and say, look at this. Man. And to turn to desperation and longing and neediness. And this is where, again, I think, you know, the, the passage you read from Beloved Dust, one of the key terms there is, as a culture, we value independence. Yes. Whereas, you know, in the faith, we value dependence upon God. Mm. And, you know, there's, there's a sense where I think, you know, our modern psychological culture, which I've, I love and I've learned a lot from, the, one of the problems it has, though, is it still buys into the kind of craziness that if I descend deep into myself, I'll discover myself. Whereas this is something the Christian has to reject because our lives are hidden with Christ and God. And as Augustine would say, you know, the problem is that you are apart from yourself and God is closer to you than you are. Wow. And he's calling you home. And so what we need to do is we need to discover ourselves in God. To use another, to paraphrase one of my favorite von Balthasar lines, at no moment of self-inspection would Simon have ever found Peter. Whoa. He had to hear that spoken over him. Oh my gosh. And many of us, and you know, Peter needed that. You know, there's when Paul rebukes um, Peter, it's interesting. He doesn't call him Peter in Galatians, that, that section. Um, and it, you almost begin to wonder if it's a little bit of a jab. Like, <laughs> Your rock, is that right? <laughs> oh my gosh. And, you know, it's, it's you know, Peter... Peter didn't know himself as rock, um, but he needed, he, he, he only knew himself as that in relation to, to Jesus. And I, one of the things I love about the naming of Peter is, you know, Jesus was a stonemason, right? So, um, and he's a stonemason who claims he's building a new temple. And then he runs into someone named Simon. And he changes his name to rock and says, I'm a cornerstone and I'm going to work on you to, to sit next to me on the foundation of a, a new sort of temple. And the imagery is just, just profound, I think, in many ways. But but Peter himself couldn't have somehow said, Yeah, I know I'm rock. It really, it really took him to know himself that I'm a rock only insofar as I've given myself fully to Christ. The stonemason the, the, the stone who's gonna who's gonna form me and who is the rock upon which I build all else. Um, and I think for all of us, we have to remember that that. We don't stand before God because of our achievements, because of our ability. Um, it's pure grace. It is pure mercy. And 
as we come before him, we come before him not only to, to discover who he is, but to even discover who we are. Um, mm. Our problem is that we're not enough of ourselves. And this is why, you know, one of the things that frustrates me is when pastors, sometimes you'll hear pastors using, um, when John the Baptist talks about his ministry, which was a precursor ministry, as that which needed to decrease so Christ could increase. Right. And they start to apply that to the Christian. That's devastating. The notion that I have to become less for Christ to become more is just antithetical to the gospel. The gospel is that I become more of who I am in the presence of God, not less. That in him, I come to know myself truly and I come to be myself truly. And we, we've, we when we develop a dualism of it is either more of him or less of me, or if it's more of me, it's less of him. That's just, you just don't, there's just no notion of that in scripture. And so I think we need in prayer specifically, not only to come to think those things, but to come to know those things Man, that in the, in the presence of the father, I, 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 I come to know who I am. I come to be who I am here um, so that I could be that person for others. That is so good, man. It's this, you know, the journey that we're all on, which is what this podcast is about. And I think this is a good place to wrap up. We want to be respectful of your time and, mm -hmm. and all that, but this is, um, this is a journey and a journey means, um, the world, you, you know, God, it's, it's a revelation that I think the theme of this whole conversation has been this, I think this, but then I realize that's not enough. It's belief, help my unbelief. It's, it's knowledge. And then in unknowing, it's this, it's this dialectic tension that a lot of times people start to feel like, oh, well, this isn't uh, holding together. So it, it, that means it's falling apart when it seems like it's the, the falling apart and the holding together that, that actually create the journey. And that is just really, really beautiful. You explained um, some of the ideas of Christian theology in a way that I've never heard before that sounds so much more like I just want to, I want to dig back into it and look and see those themes kind of come out and almost go back to my, you know, 18 year old self, 19 year old self, um, that was starting to feel very sort of out of place and, and say, it's so much bigger. It's not that simple. And uh, I think you've said that beautifully. Mm -hmm. Um, I just want to thank you for your time, um, for, for, sharing all that with us some of the some of the personal things you shared all of the the learning and the unlearning and the relearning that that you've gone through is such a gift to us and our listeners and uh i hope you'll come back and and talk to us again sometime oh i'd love to man yeah uh just uh for for people who really i think there's going to be a lot of people who are like whoa oh yeah where where can where can they go to to get a hold of uh, more of your work. Uh, do you have a website? You know, where can they go to get your books? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, um, kylestrobel.com or metamorpha.com. Uh, Metamorpha is um, the ministry I um, just co-started with my buddy Jamin, who I write on a popular level with. Um, but then kylestrobel.com is a part of that. And so we'll put that in the show notes for sure. For there. sure. My Twitter feed is as good as place of any, I suppose. And this, and this book that's coming out, it sounds like it's coming out next year. Yeah, so in January, the book, um, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, Searching for Jesus' Path of Power in a Church That Has Abandoned It, um, is the title. And it wow. comes out um, in, in January. And I think we're going to need to talk about that in January. Yeah, yeah. 
Let's do it. That'd be a blast. Yeah. Get some Christmas pre-orders going. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we can we can definitely do that. Well, once again, Kyle, thank you so much for spending time with us. We'll uh let you get back to that gorgeous family of yours and that gorgeous weather that you always seem to have in California <laughs> yeah. that we're all so jealous of. Yeah. Hey, it rained once last month. <laughs> oh, man. How terrible for you. <laughs> well, thanks again, Kyle. Yeah, we yeah, really appreciate it. God bless you guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Never get tired of this. It's so fun. <laughs> it's so much fun, <laughs> especially when we get to like sort of chronicle, you know, some of these episodes we just did, some of them we did a long time ago. This one, listening back through that, getting it ready to release, so much that I was like, oh man, I need another brain just dedicated to what we learned <laughs> doing this show. Oh, that question that you asked him about prayer just got him going. Yeah, it's just. It's always seemed like a strange thing to me to to have like almost like this Amazon wish list, I think is what I what I called it. But like you're coming with your list of wants. Yeah. You know, as if as if you deserve all of these things right handed to you. It's like, well, and they're and the crazy thing to me is that I, I have friends and, and and people that I've known and, and interacted with throughout my life who who actually have told me in all seriousness, like, oh yeah, you just need to pray harder for it. Right. And you'll get it. Well, Maybe that's not the best thing for you. Yeah, here's the reason life is wrong. You're you're screwing up the prayer formula. Yeah. Right. It's like, what? But like, that's pretty much what I've been taught my whole life. It's a very capitalistic uh, sense of prayer, isn't it? Yeah, very, very much so. And I think we need to do a whole, maybe series on how capitalism has completely trashed our ability to think spiritually at all. Yeah, I, I think... Um, I can't remember who we were talking to, but I remember somebody somebody mentioned, or maybe it was another interview that I, I was listening to. But they talked about uh, experiencing uh, experiencing God or the divine through the eyes of of people who live in what we would call third world. Oh my gosh, yeah! And how much of a big difference that is. That was when we were talking to Brueggemann. Oh, that's right. Yes, he's like, then you start to get it. Oh yeah, and I'm like, and just saying so true. that is like. Oh, dude, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Like, man. It, it reminds me a little bit of what Jack Caputo calls um, spirituality with, in, in light of grace is a mad economy. He oh. calls it a mad economy because economics make no sense when you're dealing with a God that is a, a fountain of being and a fountain of grace and a fountain of possibility. And like, there's no way to earn it. There's no way to deserve it. There's no way to merit it. And so economics are just insane. It just literally doesn't work. Yeah. And I always liked that, that mad economy. Caputo's got such a way with words. That's so good, man. I sensed a lot of that in what Kyle Strobel was was saying. And I read him kind of pre-deconstruction. He was kind of one of the guys Mm. that like followed 
with me like into this and like I still found everything he said like really life-giving and and deep and and different but it reminded me a lot of times of you know Pete Rollins the, the unknowability stuff that he was talking about how like you know there's an infinite echo of the unknown anytime we say anything about God it's like <laughs> brain matter <laughs> yeah. all over the all over the wall and just just how rich the early church fathers were about how you know that spirituality and theology weren't supposed to be separate endeavors. Right. It was supposed to be leading you into a rich expression of life. Yeah. Full, abundant life. Which is so funny to me as uh, coming from a historical standpoint or a background rather, um, the idea that we just assume that these people who were born hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago are these just primitive people who had have nothing to offer today. Right. And you look back at some of the stuff that they were thinking about back hundreds of years ago, and it, oh, well, you're like, wait, I'm the idiot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you, you talked about the uh, the early church fathers, for an example, right. you know, and, and, and studying some of the mysticism and, and some of the, the ways that they viewed, uh, you know, uh, the divine and, and the relationship, oh, and, you know, and the Trinity. <sighs> oh, and the way Kyle was just rattling all this off. I mean... He didn't prepare for this interview. We didn't give him a list of questions. And he is just <laughs> dropping quotes from obscure theologians that were like mouthwatering quotes. Yeah. I mean, really good stuff. And like I said on the intro, I think one of the things I'm starting to learn is this is going to kind of sound like a Rob Bellism. I think he kind of does this a little bit. It's like, it's not so much that we need to blow everything up and reimagine it. We don't need to reimagine Christian spirituality. We don't need to reimagine this stuff. We just need to reclaim what was already there that has gotten totally noise polluted. Yes. And and bent and used for like a capitalistic agenda, used for like all of these really weird things because like man, you may not agree with all of it, but like you dive back into like Gregory of Nyssa, you dive back into even Aquinas and Augustine. And yeah, there's some weird stuff because like science has progressed a lot since then and all that kind of stuff. But like there are nuggets galore. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That, that reminds me, I, I think that I listened to that same episode. Was that the one where he was going into what it means to go deep in the weeds? Yes. Going, actually, you know, what he meant was going back to the roots. Yes. Um, Radix, which is what root. we've been talking about yeah. this whole time. It's like, no, we're not, we're not trying to present things that are brand new ideas that, that are, you know, half cocked ideas that sound better and are more convenient for my lifestyle. Right. What we're saying is no, these ideas have existed for generations. Mm -hmm. We're going back in, in some cases to some of the original ideas, uh, within the, the church communities. Yes. So, you know, that might, I don't know, might just work a little better, <laughs> you know? I mean, I just think that I think things I think one of the reasons we all feel so claustrophobic and because we get a lot of bumper sticker answers that, you know, they're not rich. They're not complex answers. They're not complex expressions of the world. It's this really easy sort of prepackaged approved message approach to God and spirituality that we're all kind of going that. Come on, that can't be it. Right. That just. That just smells and looks fake. Like, but you go back to some of these desert fathers and you go back to the mystics and, you know, even, you know, outside of our tradition, you read a guy like Thich Nhat Hanh or you read, you know, some of the Zen masters and you, you you're like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. There, there's depth that I think that, you know, late capitalistic 
westernized spirituality has just constricted on itself so much into something that's manageable because it needs to make it a product. Yeah. It, it needs to look like a product. It needs to sound like a product. It needs to be marketable. It needs to be digestible. You know, it needs to be easy. It needs to be easy. It needs to be easy, man. I need fast food religion. Exactly. The McDonaldization of spirituality. And it better have a toy in the bottom. It better be the right toy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can ask my son. He gets the wrong toy. Take this back. <laughs> <laughs> no, you made me think of something. It's funny be, just because this is what I've been studying recently is it, it, kind of the idea of religious plurality yeah. and and how messy that becomes once this world becomes a little bit more closely connected through technology and the internet. And Whoa, that's a good point. Yep. You, can't avoid, you can't avoid your neighbors anymore, especially the ones that don't look, talk, or think like you. Mm-hmm. And so what do we do there? And it's, it's funny because you know, we've been talking about mysticism a little bit. Yeah. The, uh, like the Sufi mystics, even within um, Islam. you know, the Islamic faith, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the mystics were the ones who throughout all time have, have always tended to get along together. <laughs> they're like, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. We can keep talking. Yeah. They're the ones that, that have continued, you know, friendships with one another. We don't need to fight. Yeah. So the rest of us. There's enough unknown that we all have in common. That we could get along. Yeah. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> I love it. But yeah, that, that just made me think of that. And I'm like, oh. Oh, man, that was good stuff. That was definitely one that I'm going to go back and listen to several more times. Listen, everybody, uh, Kyle's one to watch. Yeah. If you want um, a young, kind of almost blossoming into like a Richard Rohr-like figure that has the sort of practical aspects, the thing that everybody loves about Richard Rohr mm-hmm. is it's, you know, summed up in the place that he started, the center of action and contemplation, where it is practical, it's intensely practical, it's action, but it's action that emerges from doing deep inner work that is mysterious and complicated and deals with the depths of the mystery of both yourself and the other people you find yourself with and and God. And Kyle is that kind of a guide into spirituality. Uh, His book on prayer, Beloved Dust, I said it once again, it, it is phenomenal I oh mean, my gosh it's so good and the book he has coming out next year way of the dragon or the way of the lamb oh i wish i wish it was out right now because just in time for the you know political season yeah guys watch out for this guy check him out online um i think in the show notes you can see where you, where you can get his work kylestrobel.com or metamorpha.com um just really blessed to have this guy on the show man this is freaking sweet yeah, he's just he's just getting started. And uh, as always, if you like the music, uh, the band this week is a band called Fossil Collective, a uh, band that sweet, I've been a fan of for a little while. Oh man, so purdy, so purdy. But uh, if you like their if you like their music, as usual in the show notes, you have all of the social media links, and of course, we'll tag them on our social media. But go check them out, and uh, you know, please, please, by all means, uh, tell them we sent you. Um, that just helps us get other bands, and we've got some other good stuff coming your way good juice yeah man this is awesome uh if you want a sweet shirt like the one john's wearing um you can hit the link in our show notes um thank you to everybody that has been encouraging us and supporting us and uh donating and all these things um john and i would never be able to do this if it wasn't for the outpouring of just support and encouragement and energy and and love that you guys are throwing our way. And it is uh, an understatement to say that we love you back and we appreciate anybody that is connecting with this show. Yeah, absolutely. So keep, keep, uh, keep the emails coming, 
keep the uh, social media, uh, you know, reaching out to us. Keep that coming. It means a lot to us, and it really makes our day. It does. So We love you guys. With that, we are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Grace and peace, everyone. Keep deconstructing. Sometimes